All right, you are listening to the Maker's Quest podcast. I'm Brian Benham. And I am Greg Porter. Tonight's topic, we're going to talk a little bit about the business of making and a little bit more depth there. Whether you're doing project-related, one-off type things, or whether you're making multitude of things, whether that's five of a particular item or 10 of a particular item or a thousand of a particular item in order to be successful in what we do, whether this is a hobby or whether it's your full-time job, you've got to be able to analyze the finances behind what you're doing and figure out how much you need to charge in order to be successful or uh, your business endeavors won't last very long and uh, be able to put food on the table. So Brian, I know the two of us have uh, probably very different perspectives on this in that I make things uh, that I replicate over and over and over again. And that's really my business model is is more based on volume than one-off. But when I look at at the, the work that you do, a lot of the work you do is a one-of-one. And when you're walking into one of those situations where you know it's going to be a one-of-one, somebody's not asking you to remake the last thing that you made, how do you go about putting together the the pricing, the model of I need to make this much money on this particular piece in order to be successful? Yeah. So when I first started, uh, I guessed at what I thought it, it should be. And I also looked at what other people charged and kind of based my price off of that. And I still do that uh, looking at what other people uh, are charging for their work for similar things that I'm making, uh, just to make sure I'm I'm not leaving money on the table or I'm not being ridiculously overpricing where people uh, are going to just walk away because I'm out of I'm out of what the uh, the norm is for what that perceived value thing is, what the perceived value of that is. But now that I've been doing it a while, I have a pretty good idea of how long things take, and I also keep track of how long things take. So. If I have a project that has 60 board feet that I'm going to mill up 60 board feet of wood, I will write down when I start and write down when I stop. So if it takes an hour to mill 60 board feet, then I know if the next project I do my materials list and it's 90 board feet, I know I need to have at least an hour and a half uh, labor in that thing to uh, to bill to the client to make sure I'm, I'm making my hourly rate. Uh, but for the most part, I don't worry too much about that. I still price on the perceived value uh, of what I think that project will sell for. And then I just double check to make sure my hourly rate works out to be uh, equal to or greater than the perceived, or that my hourly rate is equal to or less than the perceived value. Because if it's a higher perceived value, I'm going to charge the higher value. So do you start off then with, you do that analysis of, I think it's I think this project is worth $8,000. I think the materials are going to cost me $1,000, that leaves me $7,000. Do you start off with okay, I have a bank then of x number of hours and when I exhaust that bank I'm no longer profitable? <laughs> is that is that kind of the thought behind it? But I'd like to take this many hours, but I have this many if I absolutely need them. Yeah, exactly. So a lot of times I don't always have the design finalized when I first talk to the client. So the client might say, hey, I want a a coffee table. And I'll be like, like we have a little conversation about what they want in a coffee table. And then I'll kind of do a quick napkin calculation and be like, yeah, okay, I could probably be around $8,000. So I'll say, yeah, I could build this for $8,000. And if they say, yeah, that sounds good, then um, 
I asked for a 10% design fee to figure it all out and do all the drawings, make stain samples, uh, finish samples, wood samples, whatever, whatever I need to get the client's final signature says, yes, let's build this thing. And so when I look at that $8,000, uh, I figure, okay, I got $800 to design it. So let's say I want to charge just to make the math easy, hundred dollars an hour. So I have eight hours to design this thing. And then I need to design this thing to whatever the materials cost and whatever's left over. So if uh, I have $5,000 left over, then I know I need to be able to design whatever I design. I need to be able to build with $5,000 worth of labor. And so do you go back at any time and edit the design knowing, well, shoot, I made, I made this joinery on this piece really more, more complicated than it needs to be. And as I start to analyze how many hours it's going to take me to make this thing, it's going to take me longer than what I have money for. So I need to go back and simplify that. Do you, do you do some of that as well in your process? Yeah. So, uh, uh, if, now there's there's a uh, caveat to that. If the client signed off on decorative joinery and yeah. then I realized I screwed up, I I just eat it. I just I take care of my client because even if I eat a few um hours of labor, it's more important to me to make sure my client is happy because oftentimes uh, I'd say more than often, like 90% of the time, that client is gonna come back a year later and buy something else from me. Uh, I hardly spend any money marketing my business anymore because I have amassed enough clients across Colorado and other places that um, they like they're like, hey, we need to have Brian build us a new thing for this new remodel we're doing or whatever. So I just make sure that that client's taken care of. So if they signed off on decorative joinery, I don't I don't change it. But if they uh, if I figured I was going to do a mortise and tenon joint. Uh, and then I realize I don't have enough money in the budget, then I'm going to substitute it out for a domino because that's way faster, that kind of thing. And that happens all the all the time. Yeah. I think a lot of people don't realize that a design can be flexible in that way. You can you can have the same general solution, but it can be you can arrive at that solution a thousand different ways. And some of those ways are going to be more expensive than others. I I would assume as well on the finish side of things, we can bury immense amount of time in immense numbers of hours in the finishing process. And if you step back and say, well, if I do the finish this way instead of that way, it might save me half of my finishing time or a quarter of my finishing time. Uh, yeah, when it comes to finishing, I I have pretty well dialed in my finishing to where I don't change it because finishing is one of those things that you spent all this time building this really cool thing. And if you screw up the finish, you screw up the whole project. Yeah. So I'm pretty inflexible about my finish. Now I will say that if I want to try a new finish and there's going to be a new learning curve for me to use that, to learn that finish, I won't charge the client my learning curve, but sometimes a, an interior designer might specify me to use a specific finish that they want me to use a finish I've never used before. Then I'll throw in a few hours to learn that finish and then charge the client. Cause I feel like 
like my own learning curve because I want to learn for myself just to become a better craftsman isn't my client's responsibility. But if the client is asking for something that I don't normally offer and I have to go out and learn something new when I have a comparable product I could offer, then I do charge them them for that time to learn that or what I think it's going to take me. Yeah, you brought up an early... Uh... An interesting point earlier in that you might do spray outs or finish samples or joint samples, obviously material samples for your client. And I think a lot of a lot of designers, a lot of makers, when they start a project, they they start thinking, I'm just going to build this thing. And they don't look at all the pieces necessary to get the approvals. I, when we look at the design process, the design process has stages to it. You don't just scribble something out on a piece of paper and then build it unless you're doing it for yourself. But once you involve a client and you need to get approvals, you have to walk them through various stages of design and have sign-offs at those stages so that you're not redoing work and that you wind up with a client at the end. The goal is to have a client who's happy with the end result because they saw it coming. There's no surprise at the end that the whole, uh, gosh, uh, was it trading spaces or, or one of those programs on HGTV? It was always like the, the people would leave for a week and the designers would all tell them, just trust me, it'll come out. Right. And then they show up and it's either, it's either this enormous amount of happiness or tears because the designer <laughs> did something that was unexpected. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. And in in the real world, the the non-reality TV world, surprises are the worst possible thing that you can do unless there's a little hidden extra that that might be meaningful to a client. You know, I think of I see a lot of inlays on the bottom sides of things that that say something, you know, really uh, insightful or touching, those are good surprises. But, you know, having a, a wood grain type that the client didn't expect is is a terrible surprise. Yeah. Having an Easter egg for the client to find later that doesn't really affect the overall design when you're standing back is, is going to probably earn you a lot of bonus points. But uh, if you show up in the stain colors wrong, they're, they're not going to be, be happy. And, and getting sign-offs on your stain color will also save you a ton of money. Uh, there's been times where a client has looked at the stain and they're like, Oh, I think this, the stain seems darker than what I, th I thought it was. And then I just politely say, Oh, well let's, let's grab the stain sample. Maybe I, maybe yeah. I messed up. And then you put the stain sample on the table and then they realize, Oh, it's just because it's a bigger piece. And then they, then they accept it. They're like, Oh, okay. Yeah. That I did approve that stain sample. It's, yeah, it's, it's never gone the other way. It's, Always good to have receipts. I've I've realized that and when I say receipts, I mean uh, receipts from conversations, whether yes. that's handwritten notes or or email notes or whatever it is that you can point back and you can say, hey, on November 7th last year, we met and I showed you this sample or we went to the showroom and we pointed at this slab together and it was slab number 3807 and that's the one we purchased, right? Uh, so so it is good to have those receipts. And, and I think every one of us has to refine what that process is and how many different things the owner is going to sign off on, especially on a commission piece. I think the flip side to that, and I don't know the answer to this, Brian, there, there are people out there who make things, you know, speculative pieces. So I'm going to make this thing. 
I'm going to hope that I find a buyer for it. Do you do any of that work? And if you do, how is your approach different? Yeah. Yeah. So this right here, this is, this is for sale. This is a speculative piece. So that uh, for those that are listening, not watching the YouTube video, uh, I have a sculpted shelf behind me that I made as a speculative piece. Um, and uh, if you want to buy it, you can buy it. And that's kind of how that goes. And my speculative pieces are usually things that I want to do. It's a new thing I want to try. So uh, a few years ago, I built a bench that has a leg that has a, a, a leg of the bench is a stone that sticks up through the bench. And that's just something I wanted to try. Um, so I built it and then I found a gallery that would display it. And so the gallery sold it, sold it for me. And uh, pricing wise, I just keep track of how long it took and how much material I was. And then I figure out what I want for it. And then of course, galleries put a markup on it for that. Yeah. So my guess would be your speculative pieces probably have a, a premium on them, if you will, because there's no guaranteed money on the other end, or am I, am I guessing at that incorrectly? So it starts out with a premium, but here's, <laughs> here's what happens. Here's what happens in, in an ideal world. We'd build a speculative piece and we'd put it out in the world. We'd post about it on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, uh, or I guess X now. And oh, then, yeah. uh, and then uh, TikTok and maybe try to sell it in a gallery uh, for whatever reason. But then since it wasn't something that someone really wanted um, that was really asking for it, it's going to sit for a while. You're going to have that thing for a few months, a lot of times. Once in a while, I'll make something and someone, will, one of my followers will be like, oh my God, I got to have that. And then, and then I sell it right away. But for the most part, most things sit around for a while. So then after you get tired of it sitting around for a while, then you're just, you post repost about it at a much lower significantly price just to move it because you have materials and labor tied up in that. So it's like for someone that works a nine to five job, if you were to uh, go to work for a month and then tell your employer, don't worry about paying me for another year, pay me, pay me for this month next year. It starts to kind of hurt a little, right? So, yeah. So sometimes yeah. the price goes down. The cost of money over time, I suppose, is mm -hmm. the category that goes into. Um, interesting, interesting how that works. It, it probably starts out at a higher level and then it probably winds up at a little bit lower level. Um, I think one interesting thing to share here, and I, I consider myself pretty lucky. In high school, I took uh, what was called a business calculus class. And it was calculus, but not for engineering types. It was calculus for people who thought they might want to go into business. And part of that was was to somehow uh, quantify the cost of money over time, but also teach young business people how to how to form the algebraic equations that are pricing of things that are completely unknown. So how do you figure out what something costs to make? It's probably one of the one of the handful of things from high school that I learned that I I rely on almost on a daily basis. And what I would share is that it's it's not a it's not a calculus problem. It's a it's an algebraic problem, and that even sounds fancy. It's a pretty simple math problem. But I think the important thing that I that I hear from you, Brian, and I see in some of my work is you really do have to sit down with a piece of paper and write out all of the true costs of whatever it is that you're about to endeavor to do. And a lot of people think that's time and material. 
And that's part of the equation. But the other part of the equation is, you know, depending on how you pay yourself, there's a whole myriad of other people that you're probably paying and you may not know it. And that might be an accountant that you pay to do your accounting. It might be a tax guy that you pay to do your taxes at the end of the year. It might be uh, your insurance provider if you have workman's comp insurance because you're a business and a sole proprietor. Uh, it might be all of those things. And what you want to do is, is determine what your overhead cost is. You know, what does my shop cost me every month? What does my electricity cost me every month? And then what does that really cost me per hour if I'm working in the shop 20 hours a week, 30 hours a week, 40, 50, 60, you know, whatever, whatever that number is. But then there's all the incidental things that Brian, I'm sure you run into. What is the cost of a domino? What is the cost of the screws and fasteners and hinges? What is the cost of the little felt feet that you put on the bottoms of things. Okay, cool. If I got to crate this thing up, what does a crate really cost me? Well, it might cost me a hundred dollars worth of lumber, but it might take two or three hours to put a crate together. So it's, it's going to cost significantly more than the cost of the lumber. And then if I'm shipping it and I'm shipping it from my house, you know, what are those premiums uh, down the line and, and all the way uh, when I look at some of my products, uh, I put in there, what's the cost of the envelope that this thing is going to go into? What's, what is the amount of time that it takes me to pick this thing off the shelf, put it in an envelope and get it out the door? Because I have to drive to the post office to send my stuff. I can't just put it in my mailbox because we don't have those in my neighborhood. Uh, we can We can fit letters into our mailbox. We can't fit packages into our mailboxes. So all of those things are real costs. You know, if the post office is ten minutes away, well, that's ten minutes of my time, and it's also, by the way, uh, a quarter of a gallon of gasoline to get from here to there and back again uh, in a in a truck that gets seventeen miles to the gallon. So all of those costs, it, it will surprise you when it comes down to it. You know, even I mean, I'm looking, we put a business card in with all of our pieces. We use a Ziploc bag on a lot of our on a lot of our components that we send out the door. And you know, the Ziploc bag might be three cents. The business card is probably half a cent. But when you add all those things up over time, you have to calculate those things and you have to keep track of, okay, if I'm selling item A for $15, what part of that $15? is captured in all this overhead to get the product out the door. That doesn't even include making the darn thing, right? Right. <laughs> um, and then you mentioned earlier, you know, a lot of our advertising dollars these days are quote unquote free. If I'm making videos for YouTube or if I'm putting stuff on Instagram, technically I don't have to write a check to YouTube or Instagram to put my stuff up there. And that's where a lot of the audience is going to see my stuff. But there is a cost to making those videos. You know it. You know if you if I'm... you're making a piece of furniture and you're making a video, how much longer does that piece of furniture take? Yeah. I would I would well, argue it's significant. Yeah, I I would argue it takes me three times as long to make something if I'm filming. Yes. I don't know if it's exactly that, but it's a lot. And then on the back side of that, again, if it's a speculative piece that you're putting on YouTube, uh, how long does it take you to edit that video? And then what's the cost of carrying that money over time? And that that's a that's a weird question because we're not generally borrowing money to make these things. But quite honestly, you're borrowing money from yourself. And if you're doing that, it means you can't use that money for something else. So you should pay yourself. And 
that's where I see a lot of people in the making world, uh, in the creative world, in the fabrication world, they, they'll go belly up and they're like, well, I'm charging plenty. You know, my materials cost me this much. My time cost me this much. But they're not looking at all those really small overhead pieces that add up to a very large chunk of money at the end of the year. And, you know, it's hard to be successful when you can barely pay yourself for the time that you've got into something. And, and quite honestly, you know, we all do this because we love it. I don't think there's anybody out in the wood shop who's doing it because they thought that was how they were going to become a millionaire. <laughs> and, but, but at the same time, if you're, if you're only able to pay yourself $12 an hour and that doesn't cover rent and food and those sort of things, you know, you might be better off at, you know, at Woodcraft selling things and talking to other people about woodwork or doing demonstrations or things of that nature. And my thought is, you know, if you found a niche, if you found a product, if you found your design legs and people like that, they'll pay you for it. There's no doubt about that, but sometimes it takes a little bit to find that footing. Yeah. Oh man. You're, you opened a whole can of, can of worms yeah. uh, of, of a whole nother thought process here. So yeah. So I, you have to distinguish between your billable hours and your non-billable hours. So your non-billable hours, like the time you go to the post office and the time you're spent talking to your, your um, accountant or whatever, how do you, how do you bill that? Right. Like, yeah. And that's a movable target. So let's say you sell three uh, skyscraper guitar products today and you spend that 10 minutes going to the post office and back. So that time is divided by three products. Now, tomorrow, yeah. let's say you sell 20 of them. So that time is now divided by 20 products. So it's not a cut and dry, easy calculation because it's always, always moving. It is. And I think, Brian, you mentioned earlier, uh, there's we all have the benefit of our history. Not we all. Most of us have the benefit of our history. Some folks who are just getting into this have no history, so they don't have that benefit. When I look at skyscraper guitars, my business, I can tell you how many products went out the door last year. And that would be an average of 20 things a day is, is about the number. So 20 products per day, every day, 365 days a year. Okay, great. With that, I can make really educated guesses on how much money I'm going to spend per product going back and forth to the post office. So again, that quarter gallon divided by 20, you know, that becomes a pretty small number, but again, it's a significant number when you add it up for the, you know, the cost for an entire year, if you don't have that included in your products to, to understand whether or not they're profitable and other things are, are the same way. You know, when we look at our overhead, so I pay my wife, she makes a salary for boxing stuff up. She, she runs our day-to-day -day logistics. That's her job. And uh, I look at all the things involved with her salary and that becomes a cost of each piece that we put out the door. And again, we look at it as if 20 things go out the door, one twentieth of her time every day is is paid for by those products. And that's on top of, you know, my time in the shop or my machinist time in the shop, the anodizer, whoever else is involved in the product. And the other thing that I can tell you from, from that perspective is again, two very different worlds. The one-off world where you're making a one-of-one one and the world that I live in, which is making a thousand things at a time. When you're making a thousand things at a time, 
you're starting to look at bulk rates on whatever it is that you're buying, whether that's lumber, whether that's fasteners, whether it's finishing materials, sandpaper, you name it. Uh, when I go through stuff, if I'm I'm in the process right now, my yearly process of making 10,000 of one of our tools. And when you're making 10,000 of something, you go through a lot of supplies. <laughs> it just is what it is. I can't remember. I think I go through like eight or 10 cans of spray paint uh, because we paint the back of them yellow or sorry, orange. Geez, yellow. Uh, we paint the back of our <laughs> one of our products orange. And I go through eight cans of spray paint in the matter of like a week or two just for this one run. I go through, I think it's three gallons of boiled linseed oil when I do this, you know, and you look at every single little block and it's like, well, you know, how much linseed oil is in there? Well, it's like maybe a tenth of a cent. Okay, great. But if you don't account for all of those tiny little things, uh, and and you price that product and you say, yeah, I'm being profitable. You don't realize that, that that margin of profit starts getting eaten into. And all of a sudden you go from making money to breaking even to potentially losing money if you're not accounting for all those little things on the back end. And yeah. again, I'll kind of, I'll kind of wrap this thought in when you have that history behind you, it's a lot easier to make that guess. And, and you, you forecast it, right? You forecast it knowing that we're not going to sell the exact same number of widgets that we did last year, but we're probably going to be pretty close. The hope is that you grow a little bit and you get to spread uh, that overhead out over a few more products, but you go into it with the understanding that it's going to be about this much. So we're going to make an educated guess and we're going to put out realistic targets for making enough money to make this worthwhile. Yeah. So I have a pretty, uh, a similar calculation. I'm sure that I go through for my one-off pieces that you do for your multiple pieces, but I use averages. So I, I, with my accounting software, I track everything. And I have a category called consumable supplies and consumable mm. supplies is like your glue, your finish and sandpaper. So last year I uh, had $4,000 in consumable supplies. So it adds up my little shop yeah. bought $4,000 of consumable supplies. And uh, I, I shouldn't say little, but like, I'm not like any kind of you're huge a, cabinet shop, right? Yeah. Like, you're a one man shop, yeah. one man shop. And so that stuff adds up. So you really do want to make sure you account for that, that stuff in your, uh, in your pricing. And so what I do is I look at how many board feet I processed last year. So I add mm -hmm. up all the board feet that I purchased and processed. I subtract out the stuff that's still in the rack because I didn't process that yet. That'll get kicked into the next year. And so I divide my board feet by my $4,000. So I know like, okay, let's say, um, I don't, this is just making up a number because I don't remember what the actual number is, but let's just say $2 a board foot. So now when I bid a job, let's say this, this job has 60 board feet. So now I just add $120 in for consumable supplies. So that way it gets me pretty close. It's a pretty educated guess. So yeah, if you're first starting out, this is going to be a really hard thing for you to calculate. But uh, if you're first starting out, you just need to start keeping track and then know that like, hey, my first year is going to be a little rough one. I'm either going to like way overshoot, make a bunch of money, which would be awesome, or I'm going to lose some money on education. Yeah. And I had a good friend who told me one time, 
you either pay your tuition in school or you pay your tuition in real life. But one way or another, you're going to pay your tuition. And, and that's the the learning part of what we do. And the thing I would share with, with somebody who is kind of new to, to the game is you can give yourself budgets. And so if you're looking at a consumable budget for fill in the blank, Hey, I'm going to make, I'm going to make a pair of end tables and try and make this go. Give yourself a, a $50 budget for consumables. And then at the end of the project, really, you know, put each piece of sandpaper that you use aside. And sometimes you'll you'll be surprised by how big that pile is by the end, by the end of the project. And then and then at the end of the project, you can look at it and say, well, I was I was guessing I might use 20 pieces of sandpaper. I used 30. So I was 50% over. So if I gave myself a a $50 budget, maybe I need to bump the next time up to $75 if I'm doing a similar size project. And you can, I think you can really quickly uh, approach that learning curve and fill in some of those blanks. You're always going to have the surprises. The one thing that that we try and mitigate, it's probably our number one enemy is the redos. When you have spent the money, you have spent the time, you're at the finish line, and then all of a sudden something gets a dent or a ding, or you strip out a thread, or whatever it is that you do, and you you fight like hell to not go all the way back to the start line. You want to you want you want to get as as far up that line as you can, but every once in a while you have something that is a complete redo, and uh, some companies will refer to that as shrinkage. So they put theft, damage, and uh, just items that can't go out the door into that shrinkage category. And I don't care how good you are at whatever it is that you do, you will have some shrinkage. And the hope or the aspiration is that you mitigate that as much as you can. The longer you're in this business doing these things, the, the lower that shrinkage will become because you learn the things to avoid. And whether that's, you know, while you're, while your projects are in the shop, you have big horse blankets that you throw over everything so that something can't accidentally land, uh, you know, fly out of your hands and land on a piece that's already been finished sanded. Uh, or you have a room where things go that's not in your shop, that, that things are protected or or whatever those things are. Yeah. So I might sound kind of cheap for uh, uh, letting this little secret out about uh, my pricing, but Every project I make a mistake on, it doesn't matter what it is. So every project I'm going to cut something too short or I'm going to scratch something or I'm going to drop it on the floor. Something bad is going to happen in every project. So on my timesheet where I keep track of how long it takes me to do everything. All right. Mistake. Start time to fix a mistake in time to end the mistake. And then that goes into my board foot calculation. So on my spreadsheet, there's a line item for, you know, you're going to make a mistake so this job is a hundred board feet. So that fixing that mistake might be $30 or whatever. Yeah. I mean, that goes back to, there's a, there's a lot of guitar players that, that are what they call studio musicians. So they get paid to come in for eight hours and record on an album and they make a considerable amount of money for those eight hours. And one of the guys I know that does it said, you're not paying, you know, how do you, why do you make uh, $500 an hour to come in, you know, how do you, how do you justify $500 an hour to come in and record something when it's so easy for you? And he said, you're not paying me for the eight hours that I'm here in the studio. You're paying me for the 10,000 hours it took me to get here. 
And that that's very similar in that um, the longer we do what we do, the fewer mistakes we make and the faster we are at producing things because we're not constantly having to fix things that we've messed up. And so when when you look at yourself and you look at how you price your work, as you get better and faster, you need to increase the dollars per hour that you're paying yourself because you're worth that much. And I, and I go back to, my goodness, I was, uh, I was the only kid in my high school getting paid union scale to do electric work. <laughs> I, uh, I did electric work with my dad. I started at age 12 on commercial job sites. Don't tell OSHA. It's, I think the statute has passed. Um, yeah, but I was, I started at age 12 on commercial job sites, wiring with my dad. And when I got to high school, uh, he said, Hey son, I'm going to give you a raise. And I was like, okay, cool. And I was getting paid, I think it was 25 or $26 an hour as a high schooler. This is back in the eighties, late eighties, early nineties. And I asked him, I said, why are you paying? You know, why did you all just uh, all of a sudden give me a raise and start paying me union scaling? He goes, because you're worth it. He said, I can't go out and hire somebody to help me. That's going to give me as much value as you do for the money. So that's why I'm paying you what you're worth. And, and that really, you know, hit me hard when he said it, it's like, okay, from now on, I got to make myself valuable to whoever it is that's paying me the money so that, you know, uh, and, and sometimes that's me paying me the money, right? I, I want to be as much value as I can be. We don't want to horse around in the shop. Yes. What we do is fun. Yes. We enjoy it. But I think at the end of the day, if you're, if you're trying to make money at it, you want to be as efficient as you can be. Uh, so that you can enjoy the rest of your life outside of the shop. Yeah, and that's that's one another good thing about keeping track of your hours, of how long it takes you to do things. Because when I first started, uh, I was a lot slower than what I am now. And so let's say I I uh, just to use your twenty five dollar an hour uh, number. Let's say I was charging twenty five bucks an hour to build a coffee table ten years ago. And now it takes me half the time to build a coffee table and I'm only charging $25 an hour still. Uh, I'm losing money because now I'm not charging as much. So on my spreadsheet, I have it, my averages plotted out for each year. And then I adjust each year my uh, my pricing. So that way I'm not losing money by becoming more and more efficient as I go. Yeah. And the flip side of that coin is if, you're, if your experience level isn't uh, that high, you have to be honest with yourself and say, this is going to take me longer than it would somebody who's really experienced. And I can't come out of the gate as somebody who uh, has been in woodworking, you know, guns ablaze in there. Uh, if I've been in woodworking for two years and be charging the same hourly rates as some of the big dogs might charge, because, you know, chances are your work's not going to be at the same caliber but the other piece is, you know, the the output per hour is probably not going to match up with uh, the other folks that are out there. Now, uh, the other flip side of that coin is I've seen guys, um, Chris Devo, I don't know if you know Chris, Chris with a K, um, he's up in Alaska making cutting boards and he got into it as a hobby. And that guy might be one of the hard, hardest working human beings on the planet. And I watched uh, on YouTube, I watched him go from what I would say was a, a capable woodworker to somebody who's just outstanding in an incredibly short amount of time. 
but it was because he was putting in insane amount of hours. He was he was doing his 10,000 hours in the most condensed form you could do. Uh, and, you know, he already had some technical background, uh, I think, on the metalworking side of things, if I remember correctly. But it's interesting to see how somebody who's determined in that way can go from from a skill set that, yes, he had solid skills and whatever else, but from a design standpoint, he had a product that everybody wanted. He had some really cool looking cutting boards uh, and he, he had great timing from a from the perspective of he would do these limited runs at the holidays and with what he was doing, uh, he would sell out and, and, you know, and then he would spend the next two months working day and night, I think on top of another job. And now I believe he's doing it full time and he's really found a niche for, for doing some really cool work, being able to charge what he needs to charge for, for that service. But it has been a build for him. I, I want to say he's been doing it over three or four years now. And uh, it, it's been really exciting to exciting to watch him and his business grow along with that. So you mentioned YouTube uh, and, and we talked a little bit about advertising a little ways ago about you can advertise yeah. on social media. And that is one of the great things about YouTube is uh, you get paid to advertise, mm -hmm. right? You, you get an AdSense pay or maybe a little sponsor comes along and gives you a little, a little piece of candy or something, but you get paid to, <laughs> sorry, that's a terrible example, but that's how I feel like the sponsors that I have gotten have not been like, here's a $40,000 check. They're like, here's a little candy, a little free piece of candy. But anyways, sorry. <laughs> but, I feel I'm, I'm a little bitter about it, but um, um, yeah, but you get paid to advertise. So if, especially if yeah. you, and I've experimented with this to try to grow my YouTube channel. And there was a time a year ago, I think maybe a year and a half where I was like, I need to remodel my shop. Like this, this thing is inefficiently laid out. I need to get better dust collection. So I did a whole series of videos on, on my uh, shop remodel and building shop furniture and installing the dust collection. And I will tell you the, uh, the inquiries that I got from people that just stumbled across my YouTube videos, wanting to buy things from me dropped way off. And then the views for those things like dropped way off. Like that wasn't the reason why people were watching my channel to watch me build shop furniture. They're watching me. They really wanted to watch me build real furniture. Mm -hmm. And so now that I'm starting to swing back towards the other way, now that the shop remodel is done, uh, inquiries from YouTube and commissions from YouTube are starting to pick back up again. So that uh, that stone bench that I had spoke about earlier that I sold in the gallery, uh, even though the gallery took some money uh, as their commission, uh, I have now made more money from YouTube AdSense on that video than what I sold it for. So. Yeah. Uh, it can be a powerful thing. Yeah. I think, you know, we'll, we'll both talk about that as, as guys who have YouTube channels with a decent size audience is kind of how I would put it. I'm not, I'm not a million <laughs> subscriber audience. I'm, I think I'm at 65,000 or something along those lines. So it's not a huge audience, but it's decent enough. Um, but if you're, if you're starting out and you have a small audience, some people's audience grows very rapidly and some, some grow very not rapidly. Mine was a not rapidly kind of audience. Um, but I, I think a lot of people get into woodworking and, and some other uh, creative maker type spaces and they think, oh yeah, I'm going to have this great living off of YouTube and that'll just pay for all the stuff. And the reality is 
it doesn't until you're a huge channel or until you have a really, really good sponsor base. And some people luck out and they do that really early in their YouTube arc. And uh, some other folks, you know, never really embrace that or never really see the benefit from that. So it's it's just one word of caution. The the pot of gold at the end of the YouTube rainbow isn't really that big unless you really, really have a huge audience. Yeah. And the, and to get the audience comes with a cost. If you are into woodworking because you want to master the craft of woodworking and you want to enjoy being a woodworker, it's very hard to do that on YouTube because YouTube, you have to play the algorithm game. And so you kind of have to make that choice. Do you want to be a master craftsman that makes things or do you want to be a master YouTuber that makes videos? And there's nothing yeah. wrong with being a master YouTuber that makes videos. Um, like Casey Neistat is is freaking an amazing filmmaker. I love watching his stuff, you know, and it's not that. And he makes things in his shop, right? He has a little, little table set up in his studio and he makes stuff and it's fun to watch. But there's not like he's selling that at a high-end uh, furniture store or anything, you know, but that's not his craft. His craft is the filmmaking. Absolutely. Gosh. So, so the one sort of brag that I'll have is I used to interact with Casey back before his channel got popular. And if you look back at his very earliest early videos, you'll see he made things in his shop and he did, he did little videos on fun things. There's a $2 bill video. There was a, like a whiskey shot video. I can't remember exactly what that was, but then uh, there were a couple other like shop modification videos that he made. And I interacted a lot with him back then. And then all of a sudden he went into the daily vlog business and became this huge name. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I knew Casey before, uh, before he was Casey Neistat that we all know today, which by the way, he came out with a video today that I watched and and really enjoyed. So yeah, I just watched it uh, before we, uh, before we jumped on this call, he is actually in, uh, in our state. Yeah, he was, he was here in Colorado. He was out at a wedding in Aspen, I think, but uh, well, so kind of circling back on the business end of things. And I think, I think this is a really important point for everybody. There's this notion that if you're going to go into business, you should have a business plan. And I don't think there's anything wrong with having a business plan. But I also think you should never hold yourself back because you don't have a business plan, right? If you have an idea, if you have a drive, if you want to make things and sell things and form a business around your your craft, your hobby, you should do it. Don't let anything hold you back. Don't Don't let the lack of fill in the blank business thing ever hold you back. Do what you're passionate about. You'll sort the other things out. The flip side of that coin is if you get very deep into uh, trying to run a business and trying to be successful and working for yourself and you don't have a business plan, you don't have uh, the, the dollars and cents written down on paper somewhere and figured out, you know, here's how I become profitable. You will hit a brick wall very soon. You, you might sell the first handful of things uh, and you might be very successful at that and that's great. But when it comes time, you know, to pay taxes, to form an LLC, do the do all the things that you'll have to do as your business grows, that business plan that you have in place will start to answer some of those questions for you of, of how you do that, how you charge for those things, how you account for the things that seem 
unaccountable for as you're starting your business. The other thing that I would say is keep track. Brian, you mentioned it. Every project, how many hours did this take me? How many board feet did I work? How many dollars did I spend? How many pieces of sandpaper did I go through? All of those things, as tedious as it sounds and as non-creative as those things sound, they are absolutely paramount to ensuring that you're going to have success as you move forward. I would tell you 10 years into the business side of things and making things and and making money on it, you start to get an intuition about things and you can play more off the cuff. But the first three to five years that you're doing it, be just mental about keeping track of all the little things, because those are the things that you need to have in the back of your head as you gain more experience that you'll be able to just spit out half a second that for every for every Ziploc bag full of things that goes out the door, it costs me 78 cents. That's a good number to have in your back pocket whenever you're looking at yeah. something. I know I know that I can never price anything that I sell. I don't care what it is. If I put a penny into a Ziploc bag and sell a penny, it's going to cost me 78 cents, 79 cents to put that penny into an envelope. And at that point, I can't make an, I can't send enough pennies through the mail to, to put food on the table. <laughs> Sounds crazy, right? But, but, you know, fill in the blank, you know, take penny out of this equation and, and fill it in with something else. There's a, there's a profit margin that you're going to need to maintain. There's an hourly wage that you're going to need to maintain if that's how you're going to keep track of it. And knowing all those things off the top of your head uh, is an incredibly valuable thing to put together. Yeah. I've seen so many, uh, people that have tried to start a business and they've used like the, the materials times three or materials times yeah. four to uh, set their pricing. And a, a lot of them got into trouble as time went on because they did not have a business plan and they didn't really have a good idea of what things cost. And they didn't also have a good idea of what things make uh, or what they, what good idea of what they need to make to, uh, to uh, pay all their bills. Like part of setting your business plan is figuring out your household budget. So, you know, like, okay, I need to make X dollars to make sure I pay all my bills. Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. Uh, uh, you should also make sure or not make sure, but think of your business plan as a living document. Like when I first yeah. started my business and I went to Googled in how to write a business plan and I downloaded a template, 90% of the questions on there, I was like, I have no idea. Like I have, I have no idea what all this, some of it, I don't know what it means. Some of it, I have no idea what my advertising costs or what my cost per unit is or whatever. So as you go, you don't have to sit down and write a business plan the first day, but as you go edit your business plan, because the more you edit it, the more you keep track of the, the more you're going to be able to dodge unfortunate things, unfortunate costs. You're going to know your numbers. Yeah. And the most, the most detrimental thing to any business is unforeseen cost surprises. And sometimes that's the motor in my planer <laughs> gave up the ghost yesterday. You know, that's a, that's a $400 motor that I got to pay for, or it's a $2,000 planer that I got to replace. Take your pick. And sometimes when, again, we're looking at time as money, sometimes it's cheaper to go out and buy a new planer and put the old one to the side and maybe put it on Craigslist for, you know, a fraction of what it's worth 
and let somebody else replace that motor. Sometimes it's, yeah, I'm going to fix that motor today. I'm going to take two hours and, and make this thing happen. But those unforeseen costs, those are things, again, that, that I track over time. If I'm milling things on my Tormach, I know about every uh, every three days of operation, I'm going to break an end mill. I just know that's going to happen. And if I don't break an end mill, if, if for some reason I the gods are smiling on me, those end mills wear out after X number of hours. And I know I'm only going to get so much production out of an end mill. So those things, yes, okay. I also know that uh, since I've had my Tormach, I've replaced uh, the, uh, I think it's the X and the Y controllers that I can't remember what it's called, but it's a really expensive part. It's like a $200 part every time one blows out. And it's like, yeah, I'm probably going to go through at least one or two of those a year if I'm using that machine. And being able to budget a line item that just says unforeseen things, right? I just broke the knives on my planer or, you know, whatever, my, the belt on my table saw went out. I don't know. There's a million things that can go wrong in a shop. And, and having a budget for that, and you just hope that you have enough money in that budget that at the end of the year, you have a little bit left over. And maybe that, you know, that's the pizza party at the end of the year <laughs> where you have a little extra profit and, you know, maybe maybe you go out and, and celebrate a little bit, or or maybe that's the new domino that you get to go buy because you've always wanted one. Yeah, I think uh well, two two things. One, uh on maintenance things, that was something that I didn't really account for that I now have started to to account for, especially since when I first started, I had a bunch of hobby level tools right because yeah. that's that's what i had and then they all kind of just broke and fizzled out so then i started buying more higher end tools like festool and i thought oh i'm set for years right well festool i had the sander and it broke before the warranty was out but i had a deadline i couldn't wait to send it back for them to fix it right like so i just went and bought another festool sander so now i own i own uh three broken festool sanders and one new one right because I don't have time to wait for for them to send me back a new warranty piece. So at some point, I'm just going to have to pay now because I've waited too long. The warranty period has passed on some of it, so I'm just going to have to pay to have it fixed or sell it on Craigslist. Say, hey, you go have it fixed or something. But it's it's those unforeseen costs that you think, oh, it's under warranty, I can just get it fixed. But that downtime also is huge. Waiting for things to to come in and it's not just festool uh, i bought a recently bought an ingersoll rand um air compressor and the pressure switch broke after a month of use and uh my jet planer um the the starter switch broke on it this the switch to turn it on and off it just like shorted out or whatever i don't know just like stuff like that happens all the time yeah. that uh, just costs you a bunch of money so i think that kind of goes into like making sure you're not afraid to put a good profit margin on it, like figure out what you need to get paid, figure out what those materials cost, and then add a profit margin on it. So that way, that profit margin you can use to invest in your business, pay for the unforeseen things. And then like you said, at the end of the year, like, hey, that could be a really good bonus. Bonus, you know, do a stock buyback into your own company. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the other thing that brings up too, Brian, is there is an investment in new tools as you're doing things, as you're 
your business grows a little bit, you're going to obviously outgrow the things that you've bought. You're going to want nicer things. Sometimes the the investments that you make will actually speed you up. And those investments are huge because you invest in the tool, but then the tool speeds you up and allows you to do more. So it's it's this compounding uh, item that that really is a, a good thing. That's where successful businesses really excel is finding out where to invest that they're going to get the biggest return on that investment. And when I look around my shop, there are things that I do when I look at the amount of time it takes to set up uh, tool X. And I say, you know, if I just never had to set that tool up again, if I just have that tool at the ready at all times. Uh, the one that I think about is, you know, chamfer on a router. Uh, I I do some things where where I have the same chamfer over and over and over and never changes. Uh, quarter inch chamfer or an eighth inch chamfer. Sometimes I'll buy a router just for that. It has a chamfer bit in it, and that bit never moves. The, the tool to adjust that thing goes into the trash and that router sits on the table. And, you know, maybe that's a, a $50 or $80 trim router. And, you know, that investment makes you never have to set that tool up again. As you as you grow and expand and, and your business grows, I think smart businesses look at where they're spending time and then how do I how do I reduce that amount of time that I'm spending doing repetitive tasks? I'm setting something up, I'm breaking it down. Two weeks later, I'm setting the exact same thing up again and then breaking it down. And then another two weeks, and you look at that and you go, you know, maybe it would just be cheaper to get another router or another fill in the blank, whatever that is. And sometimes I look at my sanders. Uh, I have three DA sanders that I use and they have different grits of paper on them. And, you know, one is, is for rough work, one's for getting close to finished work, and the other is for fine detail sanding. And of those, you know, I know when I pick up the rough one, it's always going to have 80 grit on it, period. And then I'm going to have another one right next to it with 180 grit. So I can switch from one grit to the next instantaneously. There's no peeling off of paper, setting it aside, getting the box out for another grit of paper. And it's it's those little things, and, and sanding is just one piece of the puzzle. But you know, uh, finishing is another one. If you have different viscosity paints that you're using, or or clear finishes, having different guns that are set up with the right nozzle size or the right pressures, things of that nature, where you can just pick it off the wall and go. Those things are where you really start to excel from a business perspective when you're doing a larger volume of production. I just realized I need to up my sanding game. When you talked about you have your sand uh, sanding discs already ready to go, that that time where I peel off, that's when I check my Instagram and waste time. Oh, Push yeah. Up. Yeah. And and I'm not going to lie, Brian. Uh, I, I still spend time. I mean, you know, you go through sandpaper, right? Like if you're doing any any volume of finishing, you still peel through the sandpaper, but being able to to take out that 80 grit box and just set it there and you know that goes next to the red one and uh the the 180 goes next to the black one and then the the fine grit whether that's you know 400 or 600 is on the, at that point it's it's sticky back and not velcro cuz i don't invest all the way up the the line that way but um just just having those things and knowing um i can just drop one and go to the other and 
I try to never go, this is on a technique side of things. I try to never go backwards through the grits, but you always wind up doing it. Um, not always, but seems like, seems like I, I wind up, you know, there's some sand scratches in there or something that I can't get out at the end where you see them and you're like, ah, oh, here we go again. Right. I got to go from yeah 180 up through a thousand grit. Yikes. Here it goes. But, but having those things set up and ready to go where you can just grab them and grit your teeth and do it is a huge, huge help. Yeah. And the, that, yeah. Stepping back and sandpaper sucks, especially when you go to put a finish on and it, that, that scratch shows up in the finish. So one thing to, that I've, that I've started doing lately because it's happened a few times to me more, more than I'd like to admit that happens uh, is a raking light because that will, yeah. that will highlight things. And then I'll, even though if I'm using an oil-based finish, I don't need to necessarily raise the grain. I'll still raise, use some water to do that last raised grain because that will show up anything that needs more attention yeah. on it. But uh, yep. yeah, those are just the efficiencies you start to learn from your mistakes and like, why, why do I keep going to the finish room to go back to the sand table because I wasn't paying attention or I didn't really look at it? Yeah. Well, and, and when you add those hours up, the, those are the ones that hurt because they're the ones that are at the end of the project when you're out of hours mm -hmm. and you know, and I've got racing. three hours to finish this and still be making money. Right. Our time is, I always look at it as well. My time doesn't cost me anything. Yes. But if you're not being able to do the next project down the line, then your time, your extra time is costing you money. And sometimes it doesn't cost me money. It costs me sleep or it costs me, uh, being relaxed, you know, whatever that is, uh, being able to, you know, kick my feet up for a few hours and, mm -hmm. and, uh, watch some YouTube videos. Instead, I'm out sanding out 400 grit scratches from under a thousand grit finish. <laughs> there's uh there's nothing more frustrating, but again, I, I think the, the point there was there are efficiencies that you'll see. And, and this is all, I think, when we look at this, it always kind of sounds greedy to me, but we're in this to make money. We're, we're not in this, uh, you know, to, to show off to our families or do anything else. We're trying to put food on the table and, and make a living off of what we're doing. And that's not a bad thing. We all you know, show up to a job to make money. That's, that's why we're there. We're not there because we feel honored that somebody gave us a job. We want a paycheck at the end of the week. And you, if you're working for yourself, if you're making things in your shop, you have to, you have to give yourself a, a paycheck. You're worth it. And all of these things that we've talked about here add up to allowing us to pay ourselves a, a living wage and something that's fair for the time that we've put into something. Yeah. One thing I had a, a boss years ago that kind of stuck with me uh, and he, uh, he said it in an angry fashion, but I won't use the, uh, the expletives that he said it, but he's like, I'm not running a charity here. Yeah. Yeah. Your business is not a charity. It's not, it's not at all. And uh, you know, it's different if you're making Christmas gifts or, or doing favors for people, it's a completely different ball game. But I think a lot of the folks who listen to this podcast are either thinking about doing, going on a business venture, or they're already in the middle of one and just trying to learn a little bit more about how other people who've been successful in, in making manufacturing or, or producing one-off items, how they've done it, how they look, you know, what lens we look through to see that. And I can tell you every time I do a prototype, uh, I, I keep track of every single second that goes into it exactly what the material costs. And then again, all those little packaging things, all the graphic design, the shipping, the, the piece of bubble wrap that goes into it. 
And I have a, a big spreadsheet that has the cost of every single item that I do. And at the end of the day, I asked myself, well, if I'm going to make money and this thing cost me $40 to put the prototype together, how much do I need to charge for this item to make money? And if I think that nobody will pay that amount for that item, then that doesn't become one of my products. I don't have any anything in my catalog that that is a loss or a break-even type of product. I have I have way too much on my plate to to waste time to break even, and and so if it can't fit through the calculation, then I leave it to somebody else to to make that thing. Yeah, I have one one product that uh, I lose money on, um, and it's and it's intentional. Hold on, I'm, well, this will be an edit point. I'm gonna go grab it so I can show it to you. All right, so you know how uh, when you go to the grocery store. And they have all the kids' cereals at kids' eye level. Yes. Right? Because they want your kid to go, hey, I want Fruit Loops. And uh, pressure the kids pressure the parents into buying them something. So I, whenever I do an art show or a craft show, for those that are at home, home I have a box that's decorated up that looks like a puzzle cube. Um, and I sell puzzle cubes out of it. So now... If anybody comes in and they want to buy a puzzle cube, I sell them a puzzle cube. But any little kid that walks by that looks at it, I just give it away. I give them I give them one of these because then that starts a conversation with mom and dad because I may be selling little cutting boards for 100 bucks or these guys for 30 bucks, but that's not really why I'm there. I want to sell my furniture. So I have my portfolio there. I have some of my... Um, uh, speculative projects there trying to sell. Um, so I'm trying to make, make the big bucks. So I don't worry about whether or not this $30 item I'm making money on. I give it to the little kid here, like here, you can have this just, yeah, you know, whatever. And then that starts a, uh, a conversation with mom and dad that might commission a project. Some, some parents are like, that's cool. And then they kind of feel obligated to buy something. So they might buy a cutting board or something because I just gave their kid one of these, some of them people just walk away thanks for the the thing and then i then it's a loss but some people will uh, commission a coffee table or something that so. falls into the category of loss leader loss which yeah, is loss leader advertising thing which is an advertising cost yeah and you know those are real things and and you know i would tell you brian you need to put your logo and your website and all the other stuff oh, on there it is, is, it, is on, it on the, the... Cam the camera lighting so oh, there it, there it is. is. Right now there. I can see it. Yeah, the okay. camera lighting yeah. blurs yeah. it out. But yeah, it's on there. I figured I figured you had that nailed. I just didn't see it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but very, very cool idea. Well, um, I think we've we've been on about an hour. I think we've had a great conversation about Brian, how you approach kind of the one-off and and making that calculation for how to make money. And then we talked a little bit about doing products that you make, you know, in bulk and how, how you go through that formula to add in a little bit of every single thing you use to try and try and make those things profitable so that we can continue doing what we love to do. Yeah. And, the, and one last thought on accounting for everything that you alluded to uh, in your last uh, little statement about prototyping, when you prototype something, if you're going to make mass produce something, there's a, there's a cost of prototyping um, mm -hmm. to figure it out. So you might make a 
you might have to pay for some proofs or some samples to be made, or you're going to have to make them yourselves. How do you, how do you calculate that in going forward? Or is that just a cost of doing business to get the first one started? Yeah. Um, it, it's different. I, I used to pay a machinist to do my prototypes and it was incredibly expensive because it was a back and forth. He'd make the first one, he'd send it to me and oh, I need to change these three things and then do it again. And then oh, I need to change one or two more things. And then we got it right. And now that I have the milling machine at my house and all the things that I need to do to, to make the, the prototypes, the prototypes come out, I can perfect them. And when the machinist makes the first one, when I get the first bill, that first one is exactly like I want it or very, very, very close. And so uh, they'll, they'll call that the first article of production when you talk, you know, in the manufacturing world. And that first article has a huge cost to it in general. And, you know, sometimes the first article might cost you two or $3,000, but then every article after that might cost you a dollar. And, you know, if that's mold making that has to happen or whatever it is for every prototype, it's slightly different for me. Um, yes, I do make money. Yes, this is a business for me. The skyscraper guitars manufacturing piece is a, is a business for me, but uh, I have a nine to five job that I work at that I earn my paycheck at. So when I come home, that time is, is kind of like, I, I look at it as my second job time, right? And my second job, I make a lot less money than my first job. <laughs> I'm pretty cheap. And, and I know that I look at that time as an investment for me. So um, when, I, when I'm doing that prototype work, it fits within, you know, if I'm, if I'm watching TV or doing something, I have my laptop and I'm working on the fusion file or the design for it and all those kind of things. Um, but yes, I do factor that in. I always ask myself, you know, if I sell 10 of these, what did that prototype cost per item? And it's usually really, really high, but if I sell a thousand of them, what does it cost? And, and I try and realistically project what that's going to take. And, and again, is the investment worth it? I know that I'm going to spend anywhere from eight to a hundred hours on a prototype. You know, what is, what is that real cost? And then, you know, how many units do I have to sell to make that money back? And, and that is a real cost. Um, I think on the machining side, those prototype costs are very expensive on the woodworking side. I feel like woodworking is a much faster uh, medium <laughs> to work in. Um, but again, if you're going to make a thousand of something, machining probably beats woodworking every time. Um, it's just, it's just kind of different that way, but, but yes, I do figure in the costs. No, I don't worry about it nearly as much as I would have to, if I had to pay someone else. Yeah. And that like, it's kind of one of those things that you're under, you know, for sure you, you've come to terms with the fact that the first year that that product is out, you're not going to make as much profit as a second year because that first year is going to pay for the uh the prototyping yep. time yeah. yeah for sure and you know the bigger your catalog is the less you have to worry about those things uh the nice thing is as as production goes on i mean i've got some products that have been on the market for a decade now and it's the same thing we haven't gone through a redesign on them and so the cost of that initial prototype gets lower and lower and lower and you know to the point where where the the margin on those is pretty good now. 
uh, because we don't have to mess with anything. And all the processes and jigs and fixtures are bought and paid for. And uh, and again, those are all investment type things. And you're looking at ROI. And as 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 those products uh, get longer and longer in terms of their timeline, that that investment pays off more and more. And uh, yeah, the I know cost becomes negligible. It does. And I know we've talked about this before, Brian, but I've always looked at, and we're probably getting into a whole other topic here, but I've always looked at at my catalog of products as, as little ATM machines. Some of those ATM machines spit out dollar bills and some of them spit out hundred dollar bills. Some of them spit out dollar bills about one every month <laughs> and, and others spit out, you know, uh, a few hundred dollars a day or a week or whatever it is. And I think, you know, as if you're in the manufacturing side of things, the bigger your catalog gets, the more you mitigate those, those kind of dull products that come out that, that just don't produce. And, and you can sort of swap one investment for another, you know, well, that investment didn't work out too well, but I've got 10 other investments that are working out pretty well. And I've got one that's really hitting the cheese, baby. Uh, you know, I I've always looked at them that way. And, and sometimes you got to unplug the ATM and say, this one's not worth it because uh, we're either losing money or the price point's not right. Or, you know, some part of the process just isn't making this viable anymore the atm machine is burning more electricity than what it's bringing in that's right yeah, yeah. it goes back to selling pennies you know it, you can't make a living selling pennies it, it would never work out um so you, you've got to find things that are that are going to produce for you yeah all right so you want to take us out yeah well we i sure have enjoyed i always enjoy talking about business and how it applies to what we do and and hopefully there's a little bit of an educational nugget for the folks out there who've listened to us brian i appreciate you sharing your insight into the finances behind the world you live in as well and uh until next time i'm greg porter you can find me on social media at Greg's Garage KC, and you can find me on YouTube at Greg's Garage. All right, and I'm Brian Benham, and you can find me and all my socials at brianbenham.com. You're listening to the Maker's Quest podcast, so if you want to jump back into some of our old episodes, we have them all there. Thanks for listening.